How can you direct your art towards the consciousness of the world? How do you navigate the complexities of the film industry while working with A-list movie stars? Ed Swick is a writer, director, and producer who's been active in the film industry for over 40 years. He's been nominated for two Golden Globes for directing the films Glory and Legends of the Fall, and received an Academy Award as one of the producers of Shakespeare in Love. Swick continues to work with his longtime friend and partner, Marshall Herskovitz, at their company Bedford Falls, where they created the widely loved TV show 30-something. His memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions will be released in February, detailing many of his greatest experiences in the film industry. Ed Swick, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're speaking on the occasion of the publication of your memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, My 40-something Years in Hollywood, which is informative, engaging, and entertaining, and we're really excited to discuss. You've selected a passage to introduce some of our listeners to your book. Well, I did it a little bit at random, but that's always a good way to begin. My intention was to write about my experiences, obviously, but also I felt that there was a little bit of a counterintuitive approach, which is to talk about some of the inner experience of the creative process and being a director, being a writer. And I felt that would open the window a little bit wider, that it wasn't just a behind the scenes look. And it is that. And, and I think it's full of those kind of fun anecdotes and little reveals. But it presumes to be a real book. It presumes to be a memoir, like many of the memoirs that I have loved of creative people in the past. So I literally just happened to come upon this passage, but I will read it. You know, the, the title being Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, it's based on a, something that, that Preston Sturgis once said. And I think I'm as interested in the flops as I am in the hits, because there's something about failure that is especially interesting. I think in success, we are essentially mystified. Things have aligned in such a way as to be felicitous, but... In failure, you submit yourself to a real introspective process. But in any case, I'm talking about shame. And I said, shame is a heartless beast. It hounds you when you are most vulnerable, taunts you with ancient versions of yourself as a child, the gawky adolescent, the young schoolboy. I found these words in a notebook from my first time in movie jail. The appalling spectacle of my father, drunk and belligerent, berating a waiter in a restaurant, or sitting by a curb after cracking up his car and claiming it wasn't his fault. Shame is always there when I sit down to write, clucking, chuckling derisively, or standing behind me on the set, its hand on my shoulder, just waiting for any sign of weakness as its cue to pounce. As hard as it is to break into show business, it's just as hard to stay relevant. It's never a question of if you're going to get knocked down, but when, and most of all, how long it takes you to get up. The best hitters in baseball have lifetime batting averages below 333. That means they've grounded out, struck out, flied out two out of three times. The key to hitting is to forget your previous bat. Easier said than done. So that was just a paragraph there, and there's certainly more in there to come. Yeah, you learn so much from the flops, which aren't always, I mean, you've had huge successes, but you can't expect it to happen all the time. And to some degree, if it's success after success, you could become shallower in your storytelling if you're not close to the shame. Yes. I also think that what there is there then is this great sort of impulse to repeat them, but to repeat what you've done. And as you become an imitation of yourself, it necessarily reduces the sauce. It becomes, it sort of leeches out the creative impulse. It leeches out what was there that made it interesting and fresh originally. And it, it's often 
this thing that you have presumed to do that nobody has done. Because the one thing you don't want to do is repeat other people, but the most you don't want to repeat is that other person who happens to be yourself. Because, you know, you then become a kind of odd, you immediately become conservative in a particular way. Yeah. And we see that now. We've seen the AI revolution and we've seen, and this has been something with the the strikes in Hollywood designed by committee kind of filmmaking. We don't well, want an, that. It's an important point. I mean, the, obviously the AI conundrum is one we're talking about because it does take from everything else and presume to create a thing itself. But that's what all artists do. All artists do look at tropes from the past. They do assimilate a lot that has gone before them, as the great painters always did and before they took on some new course. But the difference is that committee that you speak of. I think it's very much a legacy of Silicon Valley, where the creation of teams was to try to build consensus among a homogenous group of people. And the building of consensus, I think, necessarily takes the edges off any kind of unique creative idea. And particularly, it may not be true when it comes to hardware, because you're creating new technology. But when it comes to story, this idea of being pleasing and pleasing everyone, I think is a terrible and slippery slope. Because if you're not pissing somebody off at any moment, you're doing something wrong. And the idea that you have to just cater to this kind of middle ground for everyone I think there's real danger there. Definitely. In terms of filmmaking, I want to talk through your many films and television work. To me, I'm always drawn to the flaws. And I think technology is seeking a kind of perfection, which is so uninteresting. So I'm speaking here from Paris, which I believe was your first unofficial film school. And kind of serendipitously, tell us how you always loved film, but you got a kind of dream job working with Woody Allen. Well, first thing about Paris to say is it still remains the best city in the world to go watch movies because there are still the little revival houses. I mean, I don't know if there still is the little place in the Rue Christine, but there are so many. And in addition to running version original movies with subtitles, they also had the Cinémathèque, which I think you still have. And the Cinémathèque every night had a six o'clock show, an eight o'clock show, and a 10 o'clock show. And at that time, the admission was, I think, four francs, which was so affordable. And they would change every night, but they would have festivals so that one week you would see the entire history of Italian film. And the next week would be a Fassbinder festival. Or the week after that would be Kurosawa or great American comedies or silence. It was the equivalent of what the Museum of Modern Art has aspired to do in New York again and again. But it was better because it was right after Ralbol in 1968, and it was for the people. And so every young kid would just pile in there and you'd sit on the floor and your back would get just in spasm because you'd be sitting on the floor for hours, but you could just learn everything. And I had come there as a kid interested in the theater. And I directed a lot in the theater in New York, or actually most in college and in summer stock. But I had gotten a fellowship to go see Ariane Nushkin at the cartoucherie, she was the Tirata de Soleil, if you remember what that is. They did 1789 and 1793. And Peter Brook, at that time, was at the Bouffe du Nord. And I had an introduction to be able to go observe their company as well. They were doing Leic and Titus Hydronicus. They were doing great things. And so I did that for about three weeks, at which point I was so lured into the world of movies and I met some young filmmakers and I would just hang. I was able to go on a couple of other film sets, but I 
had the most serendipitous thing happen, which was to say I met Woody Allen walking down the street and did something that I would never do before, which is I walked up and introduced myself. And I think he was so happy to hear someone speak in English because he spoke no French at all. And also I had a legitimate entree to him because I had written for a magazine in the United States that had corresponded with him about some of his occasional pieces. In any case, he was very kind. And I said, could I possibly come by the set sometime? And he said, oh, sure, just call me at the Georges Sank. And I thought, oh, well, he's just blowing me off, but he's being polite about it. But I did call him the next day. He said, oh, come on by. And I came by and he said, well, if you want to hang out, that's fine. We might have some work for you to do. And thus began my film life. And I think what a great to be plunged into that and to observe his great work ethic. And also, I think you'll be able to see like an early draft of Annie Hall and mm -hmm. just introduce to an idea that you develop later in 30 something that the intimate dramas, the quotidian is the daily life uh, is something that is worthy of inspection. That's right. And in fact, the personal, the transmutation of the personal to the artistic. And I watched him, I came to understand what the nature of his relationship with Diane Keaton had been, and then to see it metamorphosize into this relationship on screen, which was both revealing and confessional and yet artful. And obviously it was a clay, but it changed so as to serve as a vehicle for entertainment. And could something be both personal and entertaining? And obviously he wasn't the first at that. You need only have seen the Truffaut movies to have seen Leo grow up and to see who he becomes. And that, you know, from 400 Blows to Stolen Kisses in Bed and Board, you're watching the sentimental education of a young man learning about romance and learning about values and all those things. And so I think, though, that was less done at the time in American film. Although, when I came back to the United States, I was treated to some very personal filmmakers beginning to do that as well. That's what John Cassavetes was doing. That's what Paul Mazursky was doing. And so that thread, that impulse, but the one place it hadn't been done was on television. Because television was always the sort of the, the land of the artificial, the land of the two-dimensional character and the franchise and the cop and the lawyer and the fireman. And it was never about the examination of people's interactions. And that sounds funny now because streaming television, that's all it is. It all seems to be some excuse to put together an odd group of people and watch their interactions. But at the time, it just didn't exist. Sure. It was a lot driven by their professions. And they just talk about tropes. So I remember 30-something when that came out. And a kind of extension in long form of things we might have seen in The Big Chill, but kind of revolutionary. Ab absolutely. Larry Kasdan was a pioneer in that, but so too was John Sayles. John Sayles had done a wonderful movie called The Return of the Secaucus Seven. That was very, very important, I think. It wasn't a big movie. It was an independent movie, but quite good. So your long career has been one of deep friendships and collaboration. And we should also say, as much as there are so many great anecdotes and the number of wonderful actors and cinematographers like Roger Deakins and all these people that you worked with, it's punctuated with these really useful guidelines for anyone mm -hmm. in profession. So, I mean, I want to get to some of that, the advice that you give for anyone yeah. Profession. But you talk about, I think it's one of the longest friendships or collaborations in Hollywood, your uh, relationship with Marshall Herkovitz, and also, I guess, your editor, Steve Rosenblum. Yeah. Sometimes that friendship can define the course of a creative career. And I know when I was very young, I read Act One by Moss Hart about him being a young man and meeting George S. Kaufman. 
and them beginning to work together. And I know that there are all sorts of stories of those collaborations over time. I had read a lot about Billy Wilder and Izzy Diamond and people like that. Marshall, when I met him, was in some way much more fully formed, I think, than I was as a creative artist. He had a point of view. He had certain very visible skills, but there were also certain personal inhibitions that he had that I think maybe held him back a little bit from revealing those to the world. I think it's possible that I might have had certain attributes personally that might have helped us both go forward, but I think I was very much lacking in certain more craft-like aspects of actually filmmaking, certainly, but even storytelling. But more than that, this is a scary place, Hollywood, when you come here alone. I came here, I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. I had no entree. And you need someone who has your back, but mostly you need someone to continue telling you the truth. Because I went to film school and we met in film school. It was the American Film Institute. And it was a very rigorous program and a great program and actually based on a European conservatory model. But at the end of two years, I think you've only begun the learning. I think it's very hard in school and particularly in graduate school to take in all that's coming at you because you're being barraged with information and you're trying to listen and you're trying to internalize. But at the same time, you're, you're very anxious and you're very fervent, but you're also very furtive about what can I do and how do I get ahead and how do I do this? And I think those things are in contradiction. And what happens after you get out of school, as you begin to try to put into practice some of those things that they've been talking about, especially as you try and fail, unbelievably important to have somebody there with you or off whom you can bounce ideas and notions or with whom you can analyze the thing that someone else has done, or you can analyze your own failures. And it's a kind of continuing education that happens with a collaborator, that as you grow, he grows and you grow together and you're understanding and you have an observation about something or he does and you begin to work. And then it was never our intention to work together. Our intention was just as friends. We just hung out and we, you know, spent a lot of time playing video games. I mean, chasing girls, eating, you know, doing what one does. But inevitably we were drawn into saying, because you always talk about what you do, and particularly when it's film, you talk about it day and night, we began to begin to try things together. And there began a process in which it never became about my idea or his idea, but it was the creation of a third idea that somehow evolved. And often that idea was a thing that you were a little bit intimidated to say, that you were inhibited because it seemed a little bit outré. It seemed a little more radical. And the other person would say, well, okay, go ahead. Tell me, what is it? What is it? And you'd say, okay, well, it's just maybe this. Well, what if, you know, it's this is stupid, but what about? And you'd say it. And the other person would go, that's it. That's the thing we should do. And you'd say, really? But you would give each other the license to draw from those unexplored and unexpressed parts of yourself. And that thing that then emerged would inevitably the thing that other people would look at and say, oh, I know that. I recognize that. You know, the unexpressed thought, the thought that had been in some sense hidden by any sorts of inhibition or fear of being laughed at or outside the bounds of normalcy because maybe someone hadn't done it. But those secret thoughts are inevitably the ones that audiences identify with. There's an essay, actually, that goes all the way back to Emerson, and I recommend it. It's called The Essay on Self-Reliance, and it's about how that 
private thought comes rebounding back to you in this extraordinary response from the world. So that's a way of defining our partnership. The other way to define it is in deep and abiding friendship. And that unto itself would have been enough, but we have managed to combine them. Yeah. I mean, it's so rare when you think about it. So you're really first readers, first audience members, and mm -hmm. that true listening, which, you know, how rare yeah, is that? I mean, also true first readers and the first person willing to tell you the truth. Because as you go in Hollywood, in any kind of commercial world, there are so many people who seem to take it upon themselves for it to be their job to tell you how great you are, that there are fewer people fewer and fewer people, the more you do, who are willing to tell you that you're full of shit. And he gleefully does that. We often talk in our work about the octane of truth. You know, when you're at the gas station and they say, do you want low octane, middle octane, or high octane? And it's a very interesting set of decisions that one makes because it's actually not hard to know the truth of any circumstance or the truth of any story, but to actually partake of it, to actually come closer to it and still be respectful of the audience's experience. Because obviously 100% octane, we would fall asleep within five minutes because nothing happens. It's about trying to reconcile the compression of drama, the reductionist nature, how things stand in for other things. And in that regard, screenwriting and film is much more like poetry than it is like prose. Things stand in for other things, a close-up, as someone looks at someone and things change, could have been three pages of an introspective narrative in Proust. A little bit of action that takes place in three minutes could have stood in for a war in Tolstoy. And so it becomes trying to find, and some of it is sleight of hand, but it becomes about trying to understand how to use compression so as to give the simulcrum of real life, so as to give an approximation of verisimilitude. And that that's something you learn because Audiences do want to feel that they're seeing something that's real because when it's just pow, 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 then it's comic books without exposition, without introspection, without internal sense. So it's trying to find some middle space between those, some liminal space. And I think that you're very good at, in, in terms of this, looking at your whole range because you have this access to comedy, some of your very early work with the dramas, with the action, and you talk mm -hmm. about war. And I just think about some of the great performances that you've had by the stars of our time, the wonderful actors like Denzel Washington, almost at the beginning of his film career and glory, or these who you describe as a force of nature, Tom Cruise, these great action stars and actors, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, you, these real talents, charismatic individuals, just relate some of those experiences and you could name drop all you wish. <laughs> there are too many. Obviously, at some point, I had access to some of those people because they liked my work. And I was obviously very drawn to theirs. I think initially there was some shrewd calculation about what a movie star is and how a movie star can take a piece and elevate it. But mostly they become movie stars and actors for a reason of their unique and their intrinsic ability. And so it was about finding the right person for the right part, as one would always do. But it was certainly an additional advantage if you felt they were already or about to be a movie star, that they had those things in them that would hold the screen in that particular way or that would elevate the experience through some personal identification, some magnetism to their particular experience 
on that screen and what they brought to it. And I, like anyone, I always had a fascination with movie stars, a attraction to the romance of who they are, men and women. So I wasn't immune. But what I realized very quickly is that I could acknowledge that and try to take those things that had always drawn me to the movies and provide them to the audience and have them really lift up these stories that I wanted to tell. Because finally, it was the stories themselves that I was trying to serve. There were ideas in those stories. And some of the ideas were about the characters and personal, but some of the ideas were of larger canvas. They were often about subjects. And the subjects could have been historical, they could have been political, they could have been social, cultural subjects, but they had some other agenda in them. And yet, that's not why people go to the movies. They go to the movies because they want to see relationships. They want to see whether it's beautiful people or it's powerful people or whatever it is they're drawn to. So in some sense, that's creating a kind of stew where you're doing more than one thing at a time. And so there's a little bit of juggling involved in that. The story, which is essential, right? You can't have, I mean, there's some great cinematography, but without that, the actor and their talent and their charisma, and then the performance becomes so much greater than when you stop seeing them, no matter how big their star wattage is and you stop seeing. And I think that all those actors we were talking about have that. Think of it as creating an edifice, which is to say this mise-en-scene and the setting and the historical context or the social context, whatever. And there's the edifice. And the performances rest upon that edifice too. They're part of it, but they rest on it. Uh, and therefore, those things that are larger are in the context of this larger thing that grounding it. When you try to do something like that without the context, then you get a kind of hollow melodrama. But when you get a performance that seems to partake of this stuff, of these ideas and this context, it feels bloodied. It feels full-bodied in some way. And that then goes both ways and helps create those performances that then become great. I mean, I'm amazed at any film, how it all gels together and you can't see it, this magic thing. Even bad movies that they actually get all people going the same direction, but great movies, it's just something, this magic that happens. You actually wrote in your book, uh, the act in some actor's eyes never seems to dim and the camera wants to know why. We call this being kissed by the angel. They radiate the heat the way an engine in a sports car makes the air shimmer around it. We mortals are drawn to them in the hope of being touched by their magic. John Toll contends that certain faces let in light and glow from within while others remain opaque and reflective. He calls it movie skin. They are remarkable creatures. They are often brilliant in their unique way, often not in a way that is schooled necessarily. They often don't have the language some of us who are more academically inclined have, but you underestimate their brilliance at your peril. And in fact, you are missing an opportunity if you presume that they are just reading words. They are performing a very particular kind of magic in their process when they are great and they save you constantly. They find solutions to your weaknesses in the words. They help you make implausible situations more plausible in your staging. They give a depth and a heart to something that might be lacking it. Because it's not for nothing that movies, they began by showing horses running and trains crashing, but very quickly it became about the girl who was tied to the train tracks and the close-up of her face. And that was as important as the train that was coming. And that's what we look for. We try to find ourselves and to identify with these beautiful people or 
beautiful in their own in, internal way. And it takes us out of ourselves and makes us all greater, stronger, more beautiful, funnier than we are. I've learned so much. I mean, the movies have been a school for me, books and, you know, all the arts, but I've learned so much from them. And they really are a school in themselves and so much is communicated even without spoken language. And I know that the history of filmmaking is one that you might be nurturing a project for many years. And I, you, you wrote about a number of them, whether it's Legends of the Fall and, of course, famously Shakespeare in Love. That was a long labor of love. So I believe you had your own Me Too story with uh, Harvey Weinstein. Well, not quite Me Too story with Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I, I, it certainly was Me Too, but in, in a different way. It, it, it preceded the, the, the more popular definition of what that is. But I sensed his malignancy and experienced his monstrosity pretty early on. Shakespeare in Love was something that I had nurtured for a long time, and it had come a cropper when Julie Roberts, at the age of 25, about to do the movie, I think got cold feet. And that was a disastrous experience for all of us because things, sets were being built, and it was a sense of real calamity. And the movie had languished. There were a lot of sunk costs against it. People didn't necessarily want to pay for it. And it just was years in the wilderness. And I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow who came upon the script, who sent it to Harvey Weinstein. And he had read it before and wanted to do it. He'd read it actually right after he did Legends of the Fall. When he discovered there was so much money against it, he just danced away. And then years later, it turned out that he had the rights to King Kong, the, the rights to the silent movie. And the studio that owned Shakespeare in Love was willing to trade the rights to Shakespeare in Love for King Kong. And they did. And Harvey decided that he was going to do the movie, but that I was unnecessary. Unnecessary, having spent you know maybe six or seven years of my life developing that project and having been prepared to direct it. And there began a very ugly set of exchanges that involved lawyers as well. Midnight phone calls, midnight threatening phone calls from him, you know, toward my children and my career. But a friend of mine has this phrase. He said that Harvey picked on the wrong hippie. That I just you know, I'd had a certain amount of schoolyard experience. And what you do with a bully is you just punch him in the nose right away. And I did not, although I wish I had literally, but I could not get the entire movie back, but I could secure my participation and my identification with what I had done. And that's what happened. That's a very short version of a very long story that's in the book. Yes. Well, of course, and it won an Oscar for producing and many other Oscars, as we know. So it's nice to be, a, you, you come to certain compromises. We've also seen you've been involved, like when there was dual productions of a kind of the movie that became Traffic, they kind of combining, you know, you find a way to get the film made. We're all in this together, we as artists. It's hard enough to get anything done. And when you have the opportunity, if you mean sacrificing a little bit of your ego, if it means sacrificing some of your money. I think there's an opportunity. When those opportunities are there, you're foolish if you don't take them, if you don't subjugate your own ego, really, to a larger thing, which is doing a piece of work. And so in your career, you've been, we were talking about 30-something, that became a kind of film television school for many who are involved and who have gone on to you know, direct and do other projects. And there's a certain amount of prescience or what is it like to work with actors really at the beginning of their career? I think of My So-Called Life at Claire Danes and Matt Damon with Courage Under Fire or Brad Pitt. I mean, he really came to the fore with Legends of the Fall, Evan Rachel Wood and others. What is that like to see it? You, how do you identify? that talent and it must be gratifying to watch it flourish. 
Well, you've ticked off all the boxes in your question, but yeah, I mean, it's a privilege. It's a responsibility. You meet someone of that ability and promise, and that could easily be squashed too. It could easily be given bad habits and not given the kind of encouragement and nurturing that it deserves. But some of those people are so uniquely gifted and would have gone on with you or without you when you were just lucky enough to have noticed them as they were on their trajectory. But I would say that there are certain people who are gifted in a particular way and they know something you can't teach. You can encourage it, you can capture it sometimes, but it is sui generis. It, it, it literally is going to be there and you feel it. It's very much like falling in love, which is impossible to talk about. It's the thing that every poet has ever written about and no one has accurately described. That's what casting is, particularly when it's somebody young, because you sense something and it's not necessarily the attraction to a lover. It's actually a little bit more like seeing one of your children do something remarkable. That sense that you have of being present at the creation of something. And that's what it's like. And they walk in a room and you know it. And often, you know, if it was Marshall who's there with me at the time, we'll look at each other and share this look of incredulity to saying, are you seeing this? Is this really happening? Look at this person. This, and it's, it becomes undeniable. And what's amazing is how it's not undeniable all the time and with other people. How can nine people walk in a room and eight of them are just lovely and capable and yet don't touch you? And then one person walks in and you're enraptured. How does that happen? Why? Yeah, that was so nice to feel. I feel like I'm going back to, you know, I think I, I feel like I know you because with 30 something and it seems like I was a kind of parallel of your life. I, I wonder about that, about the book. I've never written in the first person before. I've always taken these thoughts and these words and put them in the mouths of other people. And that's a veil that exists and protective. Taking that veil away, I do feel vulnerable. And I wonder whether you know me better because of it or whether you know is what you know is a presentation of myself that I've made in that book. And my suspicion is, is that it's both. Yes. I think we're all actors to a degree. Yes. I mean, we have to. And, you know, to voice something that's, that was unvoiced. Gosh, there's another beautiful passage about that. You write so much about writing and then directing and acting, but to give it life, you have to theatricalize it. Yes. And to work with an actor, you have to go someplace inside, whether you voice it or not. There's a communication that happens between you and an actor that is unspoken, but that is psychokinetic, some sort of kinesis. I believe that when it's working with an actor and a director, that when that director is talking to that actor, it's not as much of what they say as what they are internally feeling. And if that actor is sensitive, as they all are, with a receptive so on the surface and so available, that they can feel that and hear that and understand that. There's a great story. I think I tell the story in the book. I don't know if I do, but it's a favorite story of mine. And it's about Mike Nichols who was, of course, a god. And Neil Simon always had Mike Nichols doing his, directing his plays. And he would sit in the back of the house and watch the plays being directed. And every day he talked to Nichols afterwards about what the rehearsals were like. And he decided that he wanted to learn to direct. And so on the next set of rehearsals, rather than sit in the back of the house, he sat in the front row and would watch as Nichols would talk to the actors. And he said, well, they talked about where they'd had dinner. They talked about their children. They talked about their affairs and their marital problems, and they talked about the business. He said, I never heard them talking about the play, but the play got better. That to me was a really important story, a very important story about one of the things that a director does that you cannot talk about, and it's ineffable, but it happens. 
Yeah, I want to say the punctuation that you do throughout of these guidelines of not, you know, necessarily giving line readings, especially to the great actors, I mean, getting them towards this feeling and or just getting them to feel to stop acting. Yes. I was wondering, is this going to, in fact, make it less of a book by making it seem to be pedagogical in, in, in spurts? But I actually think that it's the kind of a book that it's nice to have a little break in between those sort of anecdotes. Otherwise, it could become kind of relentless. So I thought that was a, a more of a postmodern solution in a way. Hello, my name is Halia Rangold. I'm a senior at Chapman University in Orange, California, and I'm a film production directing major with a minor in peace studies. I greatly appreciated hearing Edswick talk about his experiences as a student at AFI and how meaningful his lasting friendship with Marshall has been. As I'm nearing the end of my college experience, I related heavily to Zwick's comments about failure and shame and their importance when it comes to filmmaking and handling your own ego. I've seen myself and many of my peers grow from our failures and learn to turn them into learning experiences. And I truly believe you cannot be a successful artist without experiencing these blows to your confidence and then being able to get back up. I think I've been lucky enough to have begun some friendships similar to that of Ed and Marshall, especially when it comes to having someone to tell me the truth and bounce ideas off of each other. My favorite professors and classmates have always been the ones who tell it to me straight and say, no, that's not going to work, because that's how I know that they care about me and what I'm creating. I've also had the pleasure of writing my senior thesis film with my roommate and close friend, and gotten to experience that joyful back and forth of, oh, what if we did this, or oh my god, that's amazing, and maybe this is stupid, but what if we did this? Those discussions and my ability to have them with my friends have been some of my fondest memories at film school. It was also fascinating to hear about the old ways of television and filmmaking that I wasn't alive to experience, specifically about how television never used to be about narrative storytelling, about diving into people's relationships with each other. I also enjoyed hearing about his experiences with actors and finding those stars who just make you stop in your tracks and just view them in awe. Having that kind of psychokinetic connection that he speaks about with an actor, getting to dive into their lives and their stories to pull out a raw and authentic performance is in my opinion the best part of directing. Later in this podcast, Wick will speak on how personal investment goes into the films you make to turn them into somewhat of a reflection of yourself and the things you care about. This is my favorite thing he speaks about because it relates exactly to why I decided to minor in peace studies and how I want to use that education in my filmmaking. I've learned extensively about feminism, global conflict, and social change, including the power that art and filmmaking can have on creating social change. I appreciated that Zwick took the time to speak about how you can use filmmaking to share with audiences things that are important to you, because that's exactly what I aim to do with every film I make. Now, back to the interview. So one thing I loved about your book is so many of the lessons that you learned and the advice that you give can only be learned from experience. And I guess I wanted to know how you would feel about your book being taught in film schools for young directors to learn from your personal experiences. Well, it's funny that you say that. I've actually, I have imposed on Simon & Schuster, I have asked them to donate copies to what they perceive to be the 50 top film schools in America. And they are going to do that because I would like the book to be a resource to go to the libraries of, of film schools. And I'm even actually asking them to see if we can do it to international programs too, because there are a lot, so many good international programs. But yes, and, and I will go, and I have before, I've taught before, but I'm going to be at Columbia Film School in Chicago and probably NYU and maybe Columbia, New York. And I'm going to do it at AFI here and at USC and, and Chapman. So, I mean, I will go to various film schools and do a Q&A and this kind of thing about the book. But I want the book itself to be something as a resource. And I think what, what Simon Schuster says, they tend not to 
promote the book as much for educators until it's in its trade paperback because it's so much less expensive and less expensive for students to buy. You know, the book is 27 bucks or something now as a hardcover. And I don't know what it is as a soft cover, but I bet it's half that or something. Who knows? And, and I think there's a book, which is William Goldman's book, which is called Adventures in the Movie Trade, which was a wonderful resource to me when I was young. And other books, too. There's the Bresson book, you know, Notes on the Cinematographer, and a few others, too, that have been important. And I, I have a set of, uh, I guess, beliefs having to do with a certain humanist, psychological, story-based narrative film. And that style of film is in, in some disrepair. There are wonderful people still doing it, but it's been overshadowed by superhero cartoon sequels. And so if I can do something on behalf of this thing that I believe in and have been a part of, then that's what I want to do. Yes. And you should say that you honor your many collaborators over the years and teachers like Nina Fosh. Yes. I mean, we were very lucky. Nina Fosh was this amazing teacher. She was an inheritor of the Strasbourg, Uta Hagen, Sanford Meisner, that whole world of film teachers. And she really stressed in us a very important set of values and, and set of techniques. And I, I do feel that I'm trying to honor her in the book too. Yes, because I really feel also that there is a great Steinbeck quote that the teachers are also great artists. And in some ways mm. they are- No, teachers are great artists. They carry a responsibility of promulgating a tradition. And I know certain teachers who are not great artists and nonetheless have helped spawn great artists. And that's just as important. Yeah, I think it's because they forge the human spirit and that's their material, their medium. And by extension, I think that directors, their art form is film, but they are also a kind of teacher. You're teaching each member of the cast and crew. Well, I think you're also trying to impart certain lessons, whether they're moral lessons or whether they are psychological lessons to an audience. I mean, I could get very grand and talk about, you know, what it is to be a storyteller, but a storyteller looks at life and holds up a mirror to life. And what kind of a mirror is that? How distorted, how real, how dark, how colorful. And also we look at the chaos of how much of life is chaotic and we presume to make order out of it. We presume to use stories to try to make sense of an experience the same way that there was somebody in the caves in France, you know, at the end of the day when the saber-toothed tiger had come and stolen the child and taken him away, told the story and tried to make sense of it to the people in the cave as to what had happened. And I think we as storytellers are doing that all the time about violence, about sex, about drugs, about everything. Yes. And you came up during a period, I think of the, the golden age of the 70s and the auteur filmmakers and message can go with art. And I know some producers have this other belief and it's all box office results. But I think that as we reflect now on AI and its influence, and there's been that pushback about having narratives written by machines, that's something that you can't have that sense of meaning because it, they don't have that sense of purpose. They don't have bodies. They don't have that human sense of purpose. Yeah, it's a little bit like eating something that is so sweet and over-sugared that you can only eat a little bit of it and you get sick very quickly. But if you have a bit of protein and some vegetables and something of a real meal and drink wine, you feel a different satisfaction in the experience of eating a meal than if you only ate sugar. And I like sugar and I certainly don't deny that I'll certainly have some extraordinary dessert, but I, I don't think that's the meal. 
Exactly. It goes back to that high octane. You don't want that constant revving this sense, uh, which is the thing. Machines never turn off. AI works nonstop. Right. By the way, an AI makes everything happen faster. And we are so into the speed at which things happen now. I mean, what do you mean that I don't have absolute streaming? Why is my computer not giving me instant graphics that are perfect? We've come to this expectation of speed and of that kind of, of intensity. And that's that has an effect on our yeah, and I don't know how old school you are about this, because I understand the economics of no longer working on film when you're making films, working on digital, it, can, it makes sense, and then the editing process much easier. But taking away some of that pixelated information, the thousands and thousands of pixels, adds to that sense of mystery. You evoke Roger Deakins, who's a great, great artist. And what Roger has come to understand is that the modern technologies like digital can allow you to do things faster. And that's a virtue because cost is an issue. But what he does wonderfully is he has developed ways to give you less and less information in that negative to recreate and reproduce some of what you respond to so unconsciously when it's beautiful film that it's actually a reductive process now. It used to be an additive process when film was so slow you used to have to add so many lights to bring up the exposure level to a certain level. Now, because film is so impossibly fast, it's about finding ways to reduce and reduce how to play with that sensitivity so as to have less. Isn't that interesting? It's so beautiful. And I think that as I reflect on this, the slowness, we didn't know that we were living in a paradise of slowness, but I can imagine it was nice when you now you can be sending the rushes digitally and you might have the producers on the other end, the, the money men like demanding to see it. And to some extent, you could operate within mystery. Well, that's true too. I mean, yeah, God knows when people are living these presentational lives on social media, on Instagram and on TikTok and on everything else, there's not a lot of mystery left. Yeah. And I think about, I, I know that before around the, the time of COVID, you were doing a reboot of 30 something else. And I know that, that you probably have a dossier of films you always want to make. And for whatever reason, they've been paused. What was that like? In a way, I feel like maybe this uh, memoir is a, another way in book form. It's a 30 something else, the way of, of <laughs> looking back. That's funny. I, I, I guess so. I, a nice nin in one of her journals said that to write a memoir is to eat the same wonderful meal twice. And so I suppose it's been an opportunity to have the experience that I nostalgically might miss, but not in a way that is only in the past tense. The writing of it is a present tense, is a process that one does. And so it's a creative act unto itself that you are doing. And so I am doing it something that is the meta of what I'm writing about. And so it feels present. I did feel present while doing it. I wonder, as you look back at your filmography and your television, that kind of punctuates your life as a kind of biography. Do you think, oh, I, this was happening in my life or my child was being born then? Yeah, I think you don't always know that it is that at the time. It's often in retrospect that you can see that and feel that. But it's almost like a little, a little mystery that you unravel, that you then see aspects of the film that you were doing or the story that you were telling that are a reflection of the things that were really foremost in mind at the time. And that is true in many cases for me. But often the least 
the most unlikely cases. The very first thing that Marshall and I did that really succeeded was called Special Bulletin. And it was almost like a kind of docudrama, almost like a Ponte Corvo, like Battle of Algiers. And, and it was done in this way. But its theme was nuclear proliferation. And I know that at the time that I was deeply, deeply worried about the availability of fissionable materials, and I would even have nightmares about them. And that was perhaps a way of trying to bring to the light something that had been in the shadows of my uh, subconscious. And that's an unlikely personal reflection, a uh, personal investment in that film. But sometimes your personal investment can be just about what one of the characters is going through. And it isn't necessarily about the period or the context, or it could be about your marriage. And yet it's being reflected in a different relationship between two men. It's not always direct. And, and by the way, in the same way, the unconscious is not direct. You are finding themes in a more Jungian way that are a kind of representation of the inner experience, but they could be represented through monsters or through beauty or through nature or any number of different kind of metaphors. I completely understand that. My grandmother recently passed and a few nights later I had this dream and I was dancing with a bear singing it, the Beatles song, All My Love. <laughs> Wait, what, 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 which Beatles song were you singing? Oh, I never think of this song, All My Loving. I'm singing. And it was so great. Oh my God. Dancing with a bear singing a Beatles song. Oh God, you know, the unconscious is the best creator. Uh, it always beggars my imagination to see some of those things that we do in dreams. If only we could be as good in real life. It's a wonderful thing. It tells us who we really are, just as the arts do. And we, we see it for the first time, I said, as you say, this wonderful meal that we only recognize in the second tasting. So you mentioned nuclear proliferation. We're seeing a lot of conflict now. And of course, the climate crisis. And, you know, young people especially, they have all these concerns. We talk about AI and the new technologies. So facing all of this, what for you is the importance of the arts? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I think that for artists, I think there are ways, even small ways, that you can direct your art toward a consciousness of the world. And that consciousness could have as much to do with telling the truth or solving conflicts among people as it does solving the greatest of the world's problems. And I think that's certainly part of it. And I think that's not copying a plea, which is to say that you shouldn't do those things that are more overt, having to do with voting, financing, marching, protesting, any of those more active things, obviously, that you are inclined to do. But I also think that there are ways in art that you just do what you can with what you have. And whether that's writing a letter to a newspaper or an editorial, or if it's finding a way in the context of a more piece about something else that a character is talking about something. There are ways. I'm not suggesting that art changes the political world, but it does contribute to a rising chorus of voices and consciousness that does create a paradigm shift, ultimately. It just takes a very long time, and you're not aware of that curve of history as it's happening. But I can certainly point to, I mean, something that's not trivial, but same-sex marriage that has happened in the world would not have happened had we not been portraying those couples together and normalize them in media. That happened, I think, yes, because of the politics and yes, because of the, the, the lobby and everything people have done. But I think that the set of images put out there in the world 
absolutely contributed. Oh, absolutely. And even with the acceptance of trans voices and it's been enormous in the last 10 years on that level. As you say, as a director, it's not about giving the explicit line reading or shouting the loudest, but no. we're moving towards the light and truth. You bet. So thank you, Edzwick, for creating nuanced dramas, inviting us into your imaginative world and taking us behind the scenes of your 40-something years in Hollywood. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. My pleasure and a pleasure to meet you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Halia Rangold with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview podcasters on this episode were Katie Foster and Halia Rangold. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anna Dulis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our Creative Community Exhibitions podcast or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.